Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you haven't left us to ourselves to try to figure you out, to try to make sense of ourselves or our world apart from you. We thank you that you're there and that you're not silent, that you've spoken to us. We pray that you would help us to understand the word you spoke this morning. We pray especially that you'd help us to understand the doctrines of faith and of repentance. We pray that you'd help us to see these two graces as inseparable, as gifts from you, as essential to our salvation. We pray that each of us would have faith in the Lord Jesus, that we would turn from sin and trust in him. We pray that this morning you would use our time together to edify us, to build us up in Christ. We pray especially that you would be glorified in our time together. Would you help us to understand and to do what you've said? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, good morning. Lesson 46 is on faith and repentance. Again, if you don't have a handout, there's a bunch right here. And it will be important because I'm literally just going to walk through the handout. So we're going to talk about two parts, faith and repentance. It's really creative. Um, Faith and repentance, just to get us started, is our sort of flip side of the coin of what we've been looking at. Regeneration, union with Christ, adoption, the things you shouted out a moment ago. Faith and repentance is our response to the work of God. So it is something that God brings about in us, and we'll talk more about that as we go. But it is what we do in response to what we hear. We repent, we turn from sin, and we believe in the Lord Jesus. We put our trust in Him. We're going to say a lot more about what each of those are. The main idea for this morning is that faith and repentance are inseparable evangelical graces which are essential for salvation. Now let me tell you what I meant by that. Faith and repentance are inseparable. That means you can't have one without the other. You can't separate them. Now in theology it's really important that we distinguish things, but sometimes things that we distinguish also can't be separated. Right? So we are going to distinguish faith from repentance, but we're never going to separate it. Okay? So faith and repentance are inseparable. They go together like two sides of the same coin. They're evangelical graces. That means that they're gifts of God. Evangelical is from the Greek word for gospel, euangelion. And so it means that we have faith and repentance as a gift of God's grace, that God takes initiative and it's something that he gives to us. We'll look more at that. So they come together, they're gifts of God's grace, and they're essential for salvation. That just means you won't have salvation unless you have faith and repentance. Does that make sense? Any questions about that main point before we really dive into what faith is? Okay, great. Turn to John chapter 8 in your Bibles. John chapter 8. We're going to start out looking at faith in this first section. Then we'll look at repentance. And then on the back of your handout, I did some application, which will probably be brief. There's a whole lot of room to take notes on the back at the bottom half, which I normally don't give. So I just wanted to say you're welcome. <coughs> I didn't fill it full of stuff. You can actually write your own notes. So first section, faith. We're going to kind of do the same thing as we look at faith and then as we look at repentance. We're going to look at true and false faith. And then we're going to look at what is faith, what's essential, what are, the, what are the components, the aspects, the elements of true faith. 
Okay, so first section is on true and false faith. We're going to read a lot of Bible here, so stick with me and turn to John chapter 8 if you haven't already. I'm going to start in verse 12 of John chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now pause right here. I started back in verse 12 just to give us some context. We're mainly going to be focusing on 31 and the end of the chapter, but you need to start there so you know what's going on. We're talking about who Jesus is. That's the subject. Jesus says, I'm in the light of the world. The Pharisees say, that can't be true. You're talking about yourself. And then Jesus says, and you just heard it, even your law says two witnesses. And Jesus brings two witnesses, himself and his father. His father is God. So he's saying, he and the father give the same testimony about who the son is, who Jesus is. Verse 19. They said, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And you know, in the Gospel of John, his hour coming is the crucifixion. So he's saying it's not his time yet to die. Verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is saying, unless you relate rightly to me, Jesus, unless you understand who Jesus is, you will die in your sin. You have to acknowledge who the Lord Jesus is to be freed from sin, to not die in it. Verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe, there's the key word, believe. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, Jesus just said better what I was trying to paraphrase him as saying. So unless you believe who Jesus is, you'll die in your sins. Verse 25. So they said to him, that's the Jews. So they said to, so they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he was speaking, that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. That's the key word. So Jesus is exhorting them to believe so that they won't die in their sins. And then it says, after he finished talking, that many believed in him. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, there it is again, 
These Jews who are arguing with Jesus about who he is and about whether who he says he is is true, it's, John says they've believed, and it's happened twice now. Jesus says to the Jews who had believed him, verse 31 of John chapter 8, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. I'll pause there. I read all of that because the context is important. John tells you that they believed, and then Jesus tells you they didn't believe. Hopeless contradiction? No, of course not. Just understand the context. John is using the word believe in two different senses. Flip to John chapter 20. Same book of the Bible, second to last chapter. John chapter 20. This is also on your handout, verses 30 through 31. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. If we told you everything Jesus did, we wouldn't be able to fill the books of the world. Because, uh, but these are written so that you may believe, there's the word, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These are written, John says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Flip back to John 8. So the word believe is used in John's, jo John's gospel. God's gospel. <laughs> so the word believe is used in John's gospel in two senses. True belief and false belief. There's the belief of the Jews who are sons of the devil, who don't do the works of God because they're not from God. And then there's the belief of Jesus' disciples, who actually believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, they have life in his name. And John writes like this so that you'll see there's true belief and false belief. There's belief and unbelief, we could say, right? So what's the difference? 
Let me ask you, why use the same word for two different things? What's the difference? Zach? Because they often look similar. Say more about that. Why do they look similar? So, on the outside, John says, these believed in Jesus, uh, these people believed in Jesus, in John 8. There's probably some semblance of them taking what Jesus is saying at first and acquiescing to it, or following him around, or being interested in him, or looking like they're, they're on his side ready to, to trust what he says but give it more time and Jesus, if we look back at like what is it, chapter 1 or chapter 2 he says he knows what, he, what is in man needs no one to testify to him Yep. that Jesus sees their hearts and presses them a little further and then they're, they're ready to overthrow him by the end of the ch- this chapter excellent right? yep. so they look, they look like they believe and so perhaps John uses the word belief and then later Jesus reveals they don't like believe believe Mm, they don't believe believe amen well said yeah so there's a crowd full of people following Jesus some believe and some believe which ones believe believe that's John's question John wants you when he writes his gospel to find yourself among the people who believe believe as Zach said Yes, yes, exactly. Fantastic point. That's right. So we're going to look at these next three elements on your handout under letter B, and I'm going to try and show how one of them is missing in the case of false belief, right? Colleen, Colleen's example of James 2 is exceptional, right? Even the demons believe, that's James's word, same word, and shudder. We'll come back to that. That's good. Any other comments or questions on that before we go into what is faith? Caleb? Uh, in the book of John, uh, when Jesus weeps in John chapter 11, that's the only time that the Jews in the book of John call Jesus Lord. The Jews will call him teacher. They will call him a Samaritan. They say he has a demon. They say lots of things about him. But in John chapter 11, that's the only time the Jews call him the Lord, and he weeps. Meanwhile, the Samaritan woman, the disciples, lots of people, they have lots of people calling the Lord, but that's the only time in John when they call him Lord, and that's uh, a difference between true belief and unbelief, which is that you can believe what they say, but if he's, if he's not your Lord, you don't believe in him. Mm. Um, yeah. So I think that's a, a big plot point in the book. Yeah, that's well said, right? So, so those who actually believe, believe, relate to Jesus in a different kind of way. They don't just think the words that he's saying are true, but the words that he's saying, in some sense, shape their lives. They follow him as Lord, right? That's good. So you can be following Jesus and not actually following Jesus. You see my point? Okay, let's move on to, to what is faith. Uh, who can read Hebrews eleven six? Somebody just volunteer, raise your hand. Nick's got it. Who can read Romans ten nine? Sharif's got it. And who can read James 18 and 19? Tori's got it. Good deal. So when we get there, you'll know, and it'll be your turn. So we're looking at what is faith. Historically, classically defined, faith had three essential elements or aspects or components, however you want to talk about it. They're on your handout. One is knowledge. The second is assent. 
And the third is trust. I want to take a second to look at each. Um, knowledge is some sense of understanding what we're talking about. You can't believe in it until you have some knowledge of what it is we're talking about, some understanding of what it is we're talking about. Read uh, Hebrews 11.6, Nick. Yeah, so in order to please God, Hebrews 11.6 says, you have to have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And if you're going to have faith, you have to first believe He exists. And not just that He exists, but that He rewards those who seek Him. So there's some level of basic knowledge about not just that God exists, but what He's like. He exists, and that He rewards those who seek Him, that then results in faith, the kind of faith that pleases God. Does that make sense? So there's kind of a basic knowledge, God exists, and God rewards those who seek him. And I know that, right? That's sort of the first component. We need to know something, understand something. You won't believe in what you don't know or understand, just at a basic level. And I put E-G, E-dot-G, like for example, because there's lots of places in the Bible we could look, but I just wanted to look at one. So assent is with the knowledge you have, you agree that it's true. That's all assent means. It means I agree that what I understand is speaking about reality. So if we're talking about the knowledge that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him from Hebrews 11, uh, then assent would mean I agree that that's true. God does exist and he does reward those who seek him. Assent is agreement that the knowledge is true. Knowledge is understanding of something, something that is. Assent is agreement that it's true. Romans 10, 9, whoever has that. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you have to confess with your mouth. You have to say Jesus is Lord. And that comes before you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Right? That's the kind of assent I'm talking about. You're confessing with your mouth that something is true. God raised Jesus from the dead. I think that historically happened. That's assent. So we have knowledge, we have assent, and then we have the third component, trust. James 2, 10 to 19. Tori? 10 to 19? I'm sorry, 18 to 19. Good catch. Okay. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons believe and shudder. Verse 19, you believe that God is one? You believe there's one God? Good for you. Even the demons believe that, and they tremble. James, and we can talk more about this if anyone wants to, in James 2, 14 to 26, he's arguing that there are two kinds of faith, which we just saw from John. There's true faith and false faith. There's dead faith and living faith to use James's language. Living faith looks a certain way. You can see it from a person's life. Not just what they say, I believe there's one God, but actually how they live. Maybe one example would be, I gather with God's people to worship God on the Lord's day, every week. You know, I don't just say there is a God. I actually order my life around his existence and what he's like, that I come to worship him with the rest of his people, right? Demons know that there's one God and they don't worship him. 
So demons have knowledge. They even have assent. There is one God, but they don't have trust. That's what's missing in false faith, to Colleen's point earlier. They don't have trust. So maybe an analogy is helpful. I can know that this is a chair. I can agree that it will hold me up if I sit in it. But until I sit in the chair, I don't have faith in the chair. I have to trust by si- Wouldn't it be bad if this fell? <laughs> I fell. I put my faith in, a, in an untrustworthy object here. But now I have trust because I'm sitting in the chair, right? So I know a lot of stuff about a chair. I know that chairs hold people up from the ground. I even agree, I assent to the fact that chairs hold people up from the ground that I won't fall over if I sit in it. But until I sit in it, I don't have trust. Once I sit in it, then I have trust in the chair, okay? Now, by this definition of faith, I'll pause for questions in just a second. By this definition of faith, knowledge, assent, and trust, you can kind of tell that everybody has faith in something. We haven't really talked about what the object of our faith is, what we have faith in yet. All we've done is say, here's what faith is. It's knowledge, assent, and trust. And that's historically the case. The object of our faith is more important than the intensity of our faith or the strength of our faith or the fact of our faith. Everybody has faith in something. You all have faith in chairs. That was a joke. (laughs) Thanks for that pity laugh. (laughs) Everybody has faith in something. The important point is what's our faith in? So we can know that Jesus exists. We can agree that a lot of facts about his life are historically true. And we can actually not put our trust in him, as we saw from the Jews in John 8. Does that make sense? That's what faith is. And the object of our faith is more important than the intensity of our faith. It's the object of our faith, not the fact of our faith, that saves us, not the strength of our faith, right? Even weak faith in a strong Savior saves someone. Any questions about faith before we move on to repentance? Sharif? Will I talk about it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's probably dozens, maybe hundreds of examples of faith all over the scriptures, especially in the Gospels, when you see people encounter Jesus, and they have all sorts of varying intensities and strengths of faith. They have, they're at all sorts of points on the journey with Jesus. Um, there's people who just came to know him. There's people who have known him for a long time. Um, once you get into the epistles, you read about believers who have been walking with Jesus for a very long time, or the book of Acts. And your faith, yeah, it starts at a point in time, and it's small, probably, if you're like me, unlike most people. And then, by God's grace, over time, you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, as Second Peter says, and your faith grows. Um, your faith, yeah, is alive in some sense, in that it produces good works, and love, and love for God, and love for neighbor, and love for brothers, and sisters, and that increases over time. The longer you're walking with Jesus, generally speaking, the stronger your faith gets. I think I'm just, when I say the object of our faith is more important than the intensity of our faith, I'm trying to give assurance and confidence and comfort and encouragement to somebody who's been walking with the Lord for 50 years and still has weak faith. Because it's actually not the weakness of the faith that's most important. It's the object of the faith. Who are you believing in? Jesus is such a good savior that he's able to save even the worst sinner like me or like you, maybe. Cam? Do you have a question? Go for it. 
Oh, that, that's somebody right. Yeah, he read no, no, no. Okay, just, just checking. <laughs> um, Ben, I'm interested. I don't know if you got this in your studies. One of the things I've been wanting to look into myself yeah. is in First Corinthians 12, there's the gift of faith mm. amongst spiritual gifts. Mm-hmm. I'm interested, and I, like I said, I'm, I'm generally asking, so I've, I've been interested in if that's distinguished between faith mm. versus faith being a gift. Mm-hmm. Yep. Not in the sense of like, like we all faith is a gift from God. Right. But not all faith is a spiritual gift. Right. This is at least my understanding. Sure. No, and I would agree. I would want to study it a little bit more that specifically, but generally right now what I'd say is the gift of faith probably refers to an intensity that is unique among believers. So every believer in Christ has faith in Christ as a gift even of God's grace. And then there's in this Second Corinthians sense a gift of gra- a gift of faith, excuse me, that would be kind of a more intense or stronger faith, is my guess. In the same way, um, if we could just a parallel precedent, all believers are supposed to be hospitable, and yet some believers have the gift of hospitability uh, of hospitality, hospitability. I'm just all over the place here this morning. Thanks for your patience, guys. All believers are supposed to be hospitable, and then some believers have the gift gift of hospitality, right? I think it's the, the way God has arranged the body is that the unique gifts provoke all of us to our common obligation, right? So when you see, and I just use this example because he's my best friend, when you see Bill Deckert abounding in hospitality, it challenges me to be more hospitable in the way I'm supposed to be as a Christian, right? I'm not necessarily supposed to be in the way Bill is, but I am supposed to do the hospitable thing. Right. So I would say he has the gift and I have like the normal Christian obligation and his use of the gift excites me to the normal Christian obligation. Does that make sense? I would do something similar with faith and the gift of faith. Good. Other comments or questions? Tori? Yeah, good. So this kind of goes to Sharif's question. Faith in the James 2 sense is a living faith, which means you can see it by the way someone lives their life. It's not just something you say. And so when you're in relationships with people, you can tell um, sometimes with great clarity that what they're saying they believe, their life is not organized as if they actually believe it. Right? That's the case with the Jews in John 8. And so... Obviously, it changes depending on your relationship and your history with someone. But at some point in my relationships with my history with people, I want to challenge them. Hey, I appreciate that you say you believe in Jesus, but I'm not, what I'm seeing in your life doesn't accord with that. Like, help me understand that. Have you thought about that? Have, have you introduced the idea of false faith? Maybe not with that, that language, but... Have you ever thought about how in the scriptures there are people who are walking with Jesus and who say they're with Jesus and who Jesus seems to think are not actually with him? And how would you know? Like, how would you know if you believe, believe? Like, that'd be a good conversation to have with somebody, I think. Would you, like, point out, like, specific, like, lack of fruit that you've seen, like, in their lives? Like, you're not doing You can. Again, it depends on relationship and history, right? So what I'm saying now doesn't apply to everyone without exception. I would wait to see a pattern for sure. So the longer relationship you have with someone, the more you have to speak to, the more trust you have, 
We're talking about a family member who you've known your entire life is different than a stranger you just met on the street, right? Um, So take these things into account. But yeah, as you see a pattern, I think it's loving to say, hey, as I'm reading the scriptures and God is telling me what what his people are like, I'm looking at your life and I'm seeing different things. Like, help me understand that. And leave yourself in humility open to the idea that you may be missing it. You may not be seeing everything. There may be a completely good reason in their mind why they've done that thing. Maybe they need to be corrected. Maybe you need to be corrected, right? That's just part of of being a believer. I think everybody's probably thinking of someone they know um, where maybe for you it's like really, really, really clear. Uh, I have friends like that who say they're walking with the Lord. And as I look at their life, I'm like, I just don't see how that could possibly be true. And these are challenging situations to navigate. Um, But I think you kind of proceed along those kind of principled lines. You're looking for a pattern. You're establishing the the example of the scriptures where in the scriptures you have true and false faith. In the scriptures you have people who are walking with Jesus who don't actually know Jesus. Um, You try to be gentle. You can never be too gentle. Um, But it's also loving to be very clear and direct as well. And so there's a a tension there that you need to balance. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Oh. I mean, we saw that Saturday's preaching for a year or so at Covenant Life, like mm. very clearly living, and then all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, the way I process it personally is I have read the man's books. I've listened to maybe a few of his sermons. I really don't have any relationship with him, and I don't expect to ever. Um, and that's the case with most public popular figures. Can you give us some context? Oh, sure. Sure, sure. Um, Joshua Harris wrote a very popular book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye and a follow-up book called Boy Meets Girl and lots of other books. Uh, He was a reformed evangelical man, pastor um, in Maryland, Gaithersburg, right? Uh, He now is very publicly has left the faith. He's said uh, to my Christian friends, you would call what I'm doing apostasy. Like he's, he's saying that himself. Um, So we're not passing judgment on him that he hasn't already passed on himself when we talk about him. Uh, He is part of what's now being called ex-evangelical, which is a movement of people leaving evangelicalism. Um, It's just a really sad, horrible situation, frankly. Um, With somebody like that who, and I have friends like this, who previously showed what seems like really strong faith and now would say, I'm no longer walking with Jesus, I think the scripture has two categories that could apply. Um, One is a Christian who is in a season of really horrible sin. If that person's actually a Christian, like actually elect of God, actually knew Jesus at any point, they will come back to repentance. Uh, It's also the case, second category, that there are people who what the scripture calls fall away or apostatize, Um, which means they weren't walking with Jesus even though they looked like it. So their life, as it's lived over time, it's going on and you're seeing what's actually true of their heart. That they, they didn't actually know the Lord. Now, I obviously don't know which, which of those Josh Harris is in. I think one thing to do for all of us is just to remain humble and say, the Lord knows those who are His. My marching orders from our Lord and Master, right, is I preach Jesus. I look for people to believe in Jesus no matter where they are. Um, whoever has the Son has life. I don't care so much what happened 10 years ago 
as I care what's happening right now today. Today is the day of salvation, right? So with someone like that, you preach the gospel, you know? And maybe with someone like that, and I've done this with friends, you preach the gospel he once preached. Hey, you 10 years ago would say this to you today. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Repent of your sins. You can find him to be a perfect savior. You're not too far from him. If he can save me, he can save anybody. Um, I'm not going to have that opportunity with Josh Harris. But I think for those of us who have friends like that, it's a very similar situation in that what we need to do is preach the gospel to people. We need to trust that the Lord knows those who are his. That it doesn't so much matter right now with what I do today, whether they're elect or not. What matters is they're saying they're not walking with Jesus, so I'm going to preach Jesus and hope that they'll start walking with Jesus, whether that's for the first time or again. <laughs> I don't know that I care that much, practically. I think another relevant thing about the Josh Harris situation is uh, your enemy, the devil, prowling around like a burning wine, looking for someone to devour, to devour. Resist him, firmly your faith, and knowing that suffering that you are enduring is uh, shared by your brothers around the world. And in Jesus' parable of the soils, um, there's the rocky soil and the good soil. And I think what's important is that in the rocky soil, the sun is what causes that those plants to wither and not mm. last. But at the same at the same biological fact, the same sun is what's going to cause the good soil to rise up and mm. increase hundredfold. And so it's that same suffering, it's that same hardship that is is going to test things to see whether or not they are faithful and whether or not they are not. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Our life situation, our, our trials and tribulations and sufferings expose what's in our hearts. It's really easy to walk with Jesus when your life is easy and comfortable. And to be, you know, frank and honest with y'all, my life has been easy and comfortable for most of my life, right? And it's very easy to say that you're with Jesus when that's the case. When persecution comes, it gets a lot harder, I think, to Caleb's point. And that's when you start to see what's inside somebody. It comes out. It just can't help but come out. And so pray. Pray for yourselves. Pray for all of us that we would continue to walk with Jesus, that we'd be found faithful on the last day, no matter what comes in this life. Can yeah. you speak to one of the things that I struggled with years ago is this idea of there's faith that works is death. I love that you're just there rocking the baby. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that there's a, there was a debate, or is a debate sometimes, between people who used coin the term like abortion salvation, like you can't be saved if Jesus met your Lord. And then other people were talking about free grace and the I think the dis- how do what's the, the best way that you found distinguishing but not separating hmm. faith and works, if that makes sense. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times, depending on who how you're speaking or who your audience is, I, I have found that I can't hear or receive what appears to be very much a works based faith hmm. or salvation. Saving faith, you cannot be saved apart from works. Where I believe that putting the cart before the horse uh, or the horse before the cart is that faith comes and then works will inevitably flow out from Mm -hmm. this. Is a really technical debate the Lordship, salvation, free grace conversation. In as much as I understand it, I think the Lordship, salvation guys are right. Um, When someone says you can't be saved without works, what they mean by that is more important than what they just said. If they mean God saves you because of your works, then it's wrong. 
if they mean those whom God saves give evidence that they're saved by good works, then they're right. Um, it just matters which one you mean. So Romans 3.28, For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. There are no works that God is looking and seeing someone. He's justifying someone. He's declaring them righteous. There are no good works to look at. They're all bad works. As soon as someone's justified, they begin being sanctified, and then good works start. So faith comes first, and then works. Before faith, there are no good works. Um, if that's what someone means, then I'm with it. I think that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, but I think in those conversations, what I like to do is just say, hey, Lordship Salvation, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that in order to have Jesus as Savior, you have to have him as Lord? Okay, amen. Do you mean that God wants me to do good things before he'll save me? No. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's Jesus' works, not ours. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on just because of time. We have to move on to repentance. So section two, repentance. Turn to 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7. We're going to read a long passage again. And just like we did with faith, I want to show you the categories of true and false repentance in the scriptures. And then we'll talk about what is repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 9. I'm going to read it. I'm just waiting for people to get there. As I hear pages turning, I'm pausing for you to get there, which is great. So Paul is, is making an argument about his joy in the Corinthians, and he's going to tell you why. We're picking up kind of in the middle, uh, just so I don't have to read as much for the sake of time. We're going to start in verse 9. As it is, Paul says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience, keyword, of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. We're establishing the categories of godly grief and worldly grief, which is just a part of repentance. That grief produces repentance if it's godly grief. That grief is godly if it results in a changed life in obedience, in earnestness to clear yourself. That's what the text says. 
or sorry, in earnestness and in eagerness to clear yourselves. Verse 11. So there is a kind of grief or sorrow that is not true godly grief or sorrow. You can feel bad, you can feel shame, you can feel sorry in a way that's not godly. It's just worldly. An example would be, I know I did the wrong thing and I'm going to get in trouble for it. I don't want to break the speed limit because I might get a ticket. (laughs) You know, looking at the consequences, and I realize I'm not telling you everything you need to know here, but just as an example, concern only for yourself and preserving yourself is very likely worldly grief. Concern for God, how God might be defamed or dishonored or disobeyed, that's very likely godly grief. Concern for disobedience to God's clear word is very likely godly grief. Concern and sorrow and godly grief that results in me turning from what I was doing and living differently, that's godly grief that leads to repentance. Let's look at kind of the three components of repentance. And just like with faith, there are things I could have said here that I didn't say. On the handout, this is just kind of my way of saying it. If you go read a book like The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson, which is great. It's a Puritan paperback. He's going to have six. I just have three. I'm trying to just summarize for the sake of time. So there's more we could say here. The first is sorrow and, yes, shame. Feeling shame for sin is a good thing. There is a bad kind of shame, yes. There's also a good kind of shame. I don't think we have trouble with the bad kind of shame today. I think we understand that there's bad kinds of shame. What I'm not sure we understand, all of us, is that there's a good kind of shame. That we should feel shame when we sin, when we disagree with God about how human life is to be lived. It's a good thing to be ashamed of that. It's a good thing to feel sorrow for that. Now, you don't just linger there in your shame and sorrow. You let that godly grief produce repentance. You let it move you to change your life. That's what makes it good shame. It's that you agree with God, and it motivates you to live the way God would have you live. Who can read Ezekiel 43.10? Sam's got that one. Who can read Ezekiel 36.31? Mike's got that one. Who can read Isaiah 55, 6 and, 11, uh, 6 and 7? Laura's got that one. So, Sam, read it when you get there. Ezekiel 43.10, thinking about sorrow and shame as a part of repentance. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. You have a good reading voice, Sam. (laughs) Describe to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. Ezekiel is saying, among other things, that Israel should be ashamed of their sins. It's a good thing. Because shame can provoke repentance, a change of life. Uh, The second thing is distaste for sin, or we could have said hatred of sin, and desire for righteousness. And those are, again, kind of two sides of the same coin. You're hating what God says is bad, and you're loving what God says is good with respect to human life. So I'm hating what God says not to do, and I'm loving what God says to do, sin and righteousness. Ezekiel 36, Mike, 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. 
Now that text doesn't actually say hate sin, it says hate yourself. And we should be really careful here because there's all sorts of different people, even in just this small gathering. Just like I said about shame, I would say about self-hatred. There's a bad kind of self-hatred. I think we understand that today. And there's a good kind of self-hatred. It's the kind of self-hatred that hates in you what God hates, sin. It's actually even the kind of self-hatred that distinguishes between yourself and your sin, (laughs) which prevents you from the bad kind of self-hatred. Do you understand that? So you're hating in you your sin. That's what self-hatred is in the biblical sense. And if you read the Puritans, they're just going to talk about self-abhorrence all the time without that qualification. (laughs) But that's what they mean. They mean in yourself, you're hating your sin, which requires you to distinguish yourself from your sin if you're a Christian. Does that make sense? So you see how you're prevented from the bad kind of self-hatred right there? I am not my sin, not anymore. I'm a new creation. The Lord Jesus has saved me to himself. And so I hate and make war on my sin. That's not who I am anymore. Does that make sense? I think that's like Paul, Romans 7. Amen. Paul will say, yeah. I know there's nothing that's good in me. Mm. Right. So, but it's not like self-hatred. I think like what you said is like, that's just came to my mind. It sounds like, you sound like Paul right now. Mm. Well, good. Praise God. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good thing. So that's the second thing, distaste for sin and desire for righteousness. I avoided the self-hatred language on the handout just so it wouldn't be confusing. I want to make sure I can give those caveats. Uh, The third one is confession and turning. So confession, what I did was wrong. Confession to God, confession to others, both would be included. So you agree with God that what you've done is, is bad, it's evil, it's wrong. And then you turn from it. That is, you stop doing it. Turn from it. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Laura. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So the way Isaiah said it is, forsake his ways and return to the Lord. And again, it's two sides of the same coin, distinguished but inseparable. Forsake your ways and turn to the Lord, right? That's confession and turning. The reason I put it on here like this is because I think today lots of people seem to think that repentance is just an apology. That repentance is just feeling sorry and saying that you're sorry. Repentance in the full, robust, biblical sense is turning. That starts with confession. It starts with shame. It starts with feeling sorry and saying you're sorry. That's an inescapable part of this. But it ends with forsaking your ways and returning to the Lord. It ends with a turning, a different kind of life. Now, I just feel obligated to say, if you're sitting here and you're a Christian, I'm sure you feel, many of you, a kind of shame for your own sin that you're still fighting and struggling with. You will still fight and struggle with sin until you see Jesus. I'm not saying, I want to be clear, that we should expect to be sinless in this life. I don't think we should expect that. I think we should expect to keep repenting for as long as we live until we see Jesus. 
That doesn't change the fact that in the Bible, it's forsaking your ways, turning, returning to the Lord. Ultimately, that's repentance. Now, you could do that a dozen times over the same thing. You could never do that and not be repenting. Does that make sense? So I don't want anybody to leave here feeling like, oh, I should be sinless. I'm not sinless, so I must not be a Christian. It's not that simple. And I'll also say the reason we're in a church like this and we have pastors like we do is because God gives them to us as a gift to help us with the kind of sins that we struggle with over and over and over again. There's a way of struggling with the same sin that's Christian and there's a way of dealing with the same sin that's not Christian and not struggling. Does that make sense? I have a whole rant about this struggle language. I'm struggling with sin. Sometimes people say that and they're not actually struggling. They're just getting destroyed by sin. I was in a, uh, a group of young men, young professionals right out of college uh, a couple of years back when we were in Memphis. And that language would come up over and over and over again. I'm struggling with pornography. I'm struggling with lust. I'm struggling with sin. And, and at a point, I just want to be like, okay, have you cut off your internet connection? Like, let's talk about what is struggling. Because if you are struggling, praise God, I want you to struggle. Let's struggle, make war. Let's fight well. Let's maybe even cut off our hand. I mean, that's what Jesus said to do. And I know he was speaking metaphorically, but he at least means cutting off your internet connection. That's like nothing, right? Compared to cutting off your hand. Like you could actually not have a TV in your house. It's crazy to think about, but like you could. And some Christians do, you know? So I think, I think the Bible, I think Jesus would have us make war in even extreme ways on sin because we love God and hate sin. And there are practical things we can do like that to help us turn and to help us struggle well. Does that make sense? Questions? Yeah, let me pause here for questions on re- anything on repentance that you think would be helpful. Laura? I have no okay, so um, having grown up in a Christian home, pre- my dad's a Presbyterian pastor, and there was mm. a big emphasis on repent and you're saved, but mm. there was no emphasis at all on keep repenting throughout your life. Mm. Um, so can you speak a little bit to sort of the like repentance unto salvation mm-hmm. and then the repentance that we do on sort of a daily basis? Why do we do that? What's, if we're already saved, you know, can you speak to that? Yep. Yeah, let me preface by saying um, there's going to be errors on both sides here. There's going to be extremes on both sides that we want to avoid. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, the devil sends out errors into the world in pairs, hoping that will reject the one and embrace the other. And see, we can't fall off on either side. So if it feels like I'm majoring on one extreme, don't hear me as saying the other extreme. Does that make sense? If I'm not saying that, right? That was amazing. <laughs> so, so Laura, yeah, outgrew that long ago. So Laura's, uh, Laura's question is, are we supposed to repent once when we become a Christian or are we supposed to repent for our whole lives? The, the Bible's answer is you keep repenting. Repentance is a way of life. And that's something I've kind of presupposed in this entire talk. I'm not just talking about faith and repentance when you become a Christian. I am talking about that. But then I'm talking about faith and repentance as a way of life. From the moment you become a Christian until the moment you see Jesus. One day, we won't have need of faith anymore because we'll see him. One day, we won't have need of repentance anymore because we won't have sin anymore. That day is not this day. 
This day we fight. This day we believe. This day we turn and repent, right? Until we see the Lord Jesus. And we keep doing that until we see him. So one extreme is going gonna, is gonna to overemphasize repent and believe at conversion. The other extreme is going to overemphasize what sounds like sinlessness in this life. Like you can actually get there. We need to avoid both. It's not just a one-time thing you do. It's not something you do until you're done in this life. It's something you do the moment you believe in Jesus until you see Jesus. Does that make sense? I'm trying to navigate those. Go ahead. Um, based on my question, based on what you're saying, what I think of is bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Mm. That's the way I've always thought about my own life is that part of my bearing fruit is keeping with repentance. Mm-hmm. But I totally have a, um, a t- not, maybe kind of related question. This might be a longer conversation. And I asked the question because less concerned about the controversy surrounding the text, more about hearing being your counsel for somebody reading this text, mm. and particularly in Hebrews 6. Okay. I assume you know what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I assume you've read more than me about this. This is why I, I, really, <laughs> I really would love to hear your counsel, for, because I think when somebody reads this text, um, which I think is somewhat the intent of the author of Hebrews, um, but how would you bang counsel somebody in regards to this text based on... Um, your experiences with it because I just think this is an important text um, when we talk about repentance yep so verse uh, this is you can just listen to it if you want to turn there you can Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 6 is what Cam's asking about for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. This is what's called, uh, called a warning passage. There's five of them in Hebrews. There's several others that are not in Hebrews that people don't talk about a whole lot. But if you look at like John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches, Jesus says. And then He says He'll cut off branches that don't bear fruit. That sounds just like what we heard in Hebrews, right? Um, so it's all over the Bible, these warnings. I take them as warnings to continue in the grace of God. That's the language of Acts 13. That if you know God's grace, time will tell. That perseverance is the mark of a Christian. Like the people who are with Jesus stay with Jesus until the last day. Does that make sense? I think that's what this passage is saying. And the reason is verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case... Beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So who said this, who wrote this, the author of Hebrews is sure, even as he gives the warning, that the ones he's speaking to know salvation, which is often just kind of, it seems missed in the conversation. I don't think that the, the way to understand the warning passage is, well, that must mean that people can fall away in the sense of once having been saved and then no longer being saved. I think the way we're supposed to read the warning is when Christians are warned to persevere, they do. (laughs) Like the function of the warning is continue in the grace of God. Hear the warning and don't fall away, right? Um, My counsel would be the book of 1 John. I mean, it's a good one. Um, Maybe verse 9 of Hebrews 6. So the scriptures haven't left us blind to the question of assurance. 
How do I actually know I'm a Christian? Am I really saved? There's a lot of great places to look at. The whole book of 1 John is given for that. Um, 2.19, I think, chapter 2.19, I think, is where he gives kind of his thesis statement. Um, that there are those who went out from us because they weren't of us. And if they were of us, they would have remained with us. So we know. How do we know? Well, he gives you what John Stott says are three tests. There's the doctrine test. Do you confess the right Jesus? There's the social test. Do you love the brothers? And then there's the moral test. Do you obey God's commandments? And that's just summarizing all of 1 John. So over and over again, John is saying, if you look at your life, if you look at your Jesus, if you look at your fellowship with other Christians, you can tell. God has given you these tests for assurance. And then ultimately, what you want to get is the person not looking at themselves, but looking to the Savior. So you're going to do both of those movements. You're going to say, look to your life. Do you live according to what you say? And then you're going to say, look to your Savior. The Lord Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. He's a perfect Savior for anyone who comes to him in faith. Bad as you are, bad as I am, the Lord Jesus can save us. So I'm kind of working through those things in longer form. Um, does that yeah, interact with your question? Helpful. Okay. I just think it's a text a lot, a lot of people will stumble over. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, and even, I feel like the people that are stumbling over this text are probably believers because they actually mm-hmm. care mm-hmm. about. That's right. Even, it's like, oh man, this is weighty. Yeah. And then the people that, that's the, the, I feel like the author he just wants you to fail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, like you said, I agree 100%. It, it pretty, on yeah, that's a great point. Ordinarily speaking, non-Christians don't care if they fall away. Yeah. Only Christians care about that. Yeah. Ordinarily. It's a great point. Caleb? Uh, Hebrews 6 verse 1 says, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go into maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works of faith towards God and instructions about washing the rain and mm-hmm. um, Repentance is turning. It's to turn away. Mm-hmm. And so a, a problem that I have with, the, with an idea of a lifetime of repentance is that if you apply that word repentance in the way the Bible used it, it's literally going in circles. Um, but I think it's repent and believe, repent and follow Jesus. And so the lifetime of repentance, I think, should be you've turned and continue going the way that you've turned for your lifetime. And that, that direction should be towards Jesus. Um, that, that is, is that not a good way to... I don't think we're saying anything all that different. Yeah. When Christians sin, they should repent. That's, that's all I'm saying. That's what I mean when I say lifetime of repentance. I don't, I don't think I mean anything different than what Martin Luther said. Conveniently, he's right back there near the clock. <laughs> when he nailed those 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany... In 1517 on Halloween, it wasn't Halloween, (laughs) the first of the 95 theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he meant that Christians live a life of repentance. The Catholic Church was teaching a doctrine of penance, that once you do wrong, you can sort of uh, right the scales in the balance with your good works, say enough Hail Marys, pray through the rosary give to the poor. And Luther was saying, that's not God's economy. That's not how God looks at the scales. Your scale is all the way down on the bad side. (laughs) My scale is the same. What we need is Jesus, whose scale is all the way down on the good side. 
That's the only way we can have forgiveness. Ben, yeah. his point, um, going to the foundation of repentance and all of it, when we repent going forward, his idea of like believe and living out that repentance is more of a recognition of our, our new identity in Christ. Mm-hmm. Like the sin that I experience on a daily basis is not actually me. That's my flesh. My identity as a follower of Jesus is now perfect and holy because Christ is in me and my spirit is made new. And so I, I guess is there a way of distinguishing the two uses of repent there, if that makes sense? Yeah. I mean, I think, so I think when we're reading the Bible, we're dealing with a bunch of books from a bunch of different authors who are using the same words in different ways at times. So even as we looked about back in John at the very beginning, we saw the word believe in a false sense, and then we saw the word believe in a true sense. We can't just assume that the one word has the same meaning in every situation. That's called an exegetical fallacy. Right? It's, not a, it's not a good way to read the Bible. So you have to figure out in context, what does this use of repentance mean? And then in context, what does every other use of repentance mean? And what you're going to come up with is a list of possible meanings, like in a dictionary. When you go to a dictionary and you look up a word, you find out the words don't actually have meanings. They have lists of possible meanings. That's a joke. Words do have meanings. <laughs> but context determines meaning. So if you go look up the word love and you see there's like six possible choices, which choice do you choose? Well, it depends on context. It's the same thing with the word repentance in Hebrews 6. Uh, same thing with the word believe in John 8 and John 20. Laura's laughing at my horribly bad jokes. <laughs> Thank you guys for persevering anyway. All right, flip over to, to the back of the page. We're going to do application briefly, and then we've got to head out of here. So I put on here three things that I think were implicit the whole way along that I just think we ought to make explicit before we leave. One is, if you haven't, repent and believe in Jesus. I don't assume when I'm talking to a room full of people, and you shouldn't either, that everyone's a Christian. If you're not a Christian, turn from your sin. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Everything we've been saying this morning can be yours in Christ. Right? So that's the first application when we talk about faith and repentance. Become a Christian. Believe in Jesus. Turn from sin. And then the second and third thing are just use these categories, what I think are biblical categories, in your conversations with people. Whether they be Christians or especially with non-Christians, preach about true faith. Distinguish between true and false faith. Talk about what the components of faith are, knowledge, assent, and trust. Urge people to have trust in Jesus and not just to know certain true historical facts. Preach true repentance. Urge people to understand the difference between godly and worldly grief or sorrow. Urge people to understand the difference between repentance and saying sorry. That there's a kind of confession, yes, that's where it starts, and it ends with turning. Right, so in your conversations with people, in your own thinking, preach to yourself, right? Preach true faith and true repentance to yourself. In light of time, I'm going to pray, and then I'll stick around if anyone has any other questions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he loved us and gave himself for his people, that we can find in him a perfect Savior that he knew no sin, that he always trusted you and your word, that he was persuaded by you at every moment of his life that what you say is true, that you are who you say you are. Thank you that he went to the cross and died for sinners like us. 
Thank you that we can now turn from sin and trust in him, that we can keep doing that until we see him. I do pray that for all of us here, we would keep believing in Jesus, that we would persevere until the last day, that we who have faith would one day have sight of the Son. We do ask it in his name. Amen.